Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Great. Thanks so much for coming out and, you know, finding your way down this hallway. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so I'm Kyla, and this panel is about disaster coverage, but after it happens or, you know, looking at it more long term, because what I was really interested in learning more about and talking about is, you know, something happens, a wildfire, a flood, a hurricane, and the news attention is on it, and that's, you know, all the news can talk about, and then it stops, it goes away, and everyone sort of forgets it happens, but, you know, everyone on the ground is still dealing with the impacts, and, you know, decision makers are still thinking about recovery, but also how do we prepare for the next one, and it just sort of feels like things pile up, you know, over the past few years, there's been so many, and how do you keep track and, and do all of these stories justice? So before we dive into the questions, I'll have each of our panelists introduce themselves for a few minutes and talk a little bit about their work and what they're doing in this space. Hi, um, my name is Anna Campoy. I am a reporter at Quartz, um, which is a digital-only publication that writes about the global economy, but um, and, and that you know includes um, natural disasters. Before that, I was at the Wall Street Journal, and I in Texas, and I covered a lot of natural disasters. So um, I've been covering natural disasters for most of my career, um, mostly hurricanes, but um, tornadoes, um, uh, fires, etc. Um, and I have done the parachuting many, many times. And, um, and I have also done the longer term stuff. And um, I have a few, you know, ways that I do it. And uh, sometimes it's going in through a, a separate um, topic like uh, the economy and what the natural disaster did to the economy. Or um, uh, does a natural disaster make people change um, how they think about governance? Um, so so I do that, that. That's kind of like the little in that I use. I don't um, necessarily, in the aftermath, um, we just want to talk about the natural disaster, but kind of like how it changes things. And um, and then uh, for Hurricane Maria, I did a really long-term project um, with um, the Center for Investigative Journalism in Puerto Rico and the AP, and we actually spent a year working on this. And it was um, an effort to document the number of people who died. Um, and actually not just how many, but who and why. And so we, because uh, the government didn't keep track of that information, we um, um, did an online survey and asked people to report deaths. And then we um, matched that with the official death record. So, I mean, people died during the hurricane and they had a death certificate, but the death certificate did not say that they died because of the hurricane or, you know, causes related to the, to the hurricane. So, um, so we spent a lot of time working on this and, um, and I can talk about that if anyone is interested. Um, and we, uh, so we documented around 500 cases, um, and that really gave us a, a, a very nuanced and detailed picture of what happened. Why did people die? Um, and um, 
yeah, so if anyone wants to talk about that, I'm happy to answer questions about that. Hi, um, I'm Jolie Breeden, um, and I am with the uh, Natural Hazard Center at CU Boulder, um, where I am the lead editor for um, Disaster Research News and a publication series called Research Counts. Um, the Natural Hazard Center is an uh, National Science Foundation funded center that is a clearinghouse for hazards and disaster information. We mainly deal with the social impacts of hazards and disasters and um, we have a lot of uh, a a broad range of connections and resources that um, are useful for um, anybody who's reporting in that field. And uh, we can also um, offer uh, understanding of a lot of the um, the a lot of the impacts, the social impacts of hazards and disasters are built into our social structures and built into our infrastructures. And um, so we do a lot of work around that. Um, and um, I probably will talk more, I think, about uh, what we what we can offer you as in terms of resources. Um, for me, myself, um, I started, um, I've always been um, a journalist along the front range, um, and I uh, have worked for very, very small papers in the front range. And um, up to, um, I used to work at the Rocky Mountain News before um, it folded. And um, so I've had a chance to cover a lot of um, disasters when I was doing more general reporting um, I did a lot of work uh, uh, with like the Hayman fire was like my very first disaster that um, I covered that was in 2002 um, and that kind of got me interested um, in that and how I could uh, report on disasters um, pretty much all the time because um, you know we're always in a state of disaster if we're not recovering from it or responding to it um, we're maybe getting ready to build the next one um, based on land use planning and development and there's just so many opportunities to uh to, to stay on top of what is happening, what happened, and what's going to happen um, that, you know, that was always of interest to me. So, and I'll turn it over to Mark. I'm Mark Schlefstein, and I'm a reporter at the Times-Picayune in New Orleans. Been there for 35 years. Um, and um, I cover unnatural disasters. I don't believe that there are natural disasters. Um, and my reporting in New Orleans has sort of confirmed that. Um, everybody knows about Hurricane Katrina and the devastation that occurred, but the majority of damage that occurred in New Orleans was a direct result of human failures in the construction of the levee system around the city, uh, which caused a significant chunk of the flooding. Um, and what I found is that basically most disasters, when they cause problems for people, it's because we did not adequately understand the residual risk uh, involved with living where we do. And um, that's my other uh, hot uh, topic that I cover is residual risk. Um, which is, uh, uh, the way I describe it, is basically uh, the risk of something happening that you're not expecting that someone else has not planned for 
that you don't understand might have effects on you. Um, and uh, in Louisiana, um, the uh, a significant uh, example of that would be the Katrina levee failures, but also the BP oil spill disaster, um, where uh, in that case, we were spending so much time covering the re residual risk issues involving the levee system that we failed to failed to look behind us and uh, take a look at what was happening out in the Gulf of Mexico and keeping them uh, straight uh, on uh, the processes, uh, processes that they were using to develop oil that were uh, unsustainable. Great, thanks. And I guess, so just following up on what you were saying there, Mark, so maybe keep holding up to the microphone. <laughs> um, so, so when you talk about unnatural disaster and and how it you know the human factor that plays into that how does that sort of guide your reporting when you're working on these sorts of stories does that mean you're starting from a different question or you know how does that help you okay so um well i'll give you an example before katrina um uh, i did a study i think it was a, a, a story uh about the potential problems that uh, the state had with its highway system during future hurricanes um, that were pointed out by a similar hurricane uh, that hit the Florida coast and uh, caused significant damage in Pascagoula, uh, Mississippi, and also uh, bridge decks in, um, oh, what's the first city in, in, in Florida uh, on, in the, the Gulf Coast? Um, but anyway, I can't remember the name of it. But a hurricane came and it popped the it popped the bridge decks off of uh, off of these high rise bridges uh, because the surge was high enough that it it just pushed them out and um, the the highways were not not designed for the forces that a hurricane storm surge could do. And so I uh, contacted the the state and said. Uh, um, our Department of Transportation, and I said, what, what plans are you making to upgrade our bridges so that they don't pop off um, like they did in Florida? And they said, oh, our bridges won't do that. Um, our designs uh, are such that that's not going to happen. And of course, during Katrina, that's exactly what did happen. Um, a significant chunk of the bridges, um, the, of the, the two bridges that uh, connect uh, New Orleans to the north shore of Lake Pontchartrain, uh, Slidell, uh, all popped off um, and uh, resulted in uh, uh, several hundred million dollars of damage. Um, and uh, the, the similar sort of, of thing that, uh, while I didn't quite report on it, I did internally was uh, when, uh, uh, in advance of Katrina, I asked, uh, uh, my, my publisher was talking about how wonderful our, our uh, uh, newsroom office was on the third floor uh, for hurricanes. And I said, well, we still have a problem with these big picture windows. Um, uh, they're just not, you know, they're going to pop out. And uh, he said, oh, no, that's not going to be a problem uh, because uh, the windows are designed so that they, uh, they're not going to fail. In fact, they're all uh, made out of bulletproof Lexan, so they won't shatter. And I said, the problem is not that they're going to shatter. It's that the, um, um, the, 
the aluminum uh, uh, pieces that hold them into in, in place are going to fail because of the winds. And indeed, there was one window that failed during Katrina, and it was in his office, and it caused flooding. <laughs> Which was my first. I told you so. The the bridges uh, popped uh, a couple of hours later. So that's the couple of ideas. <laughs> Great. And I guess opening that up to others, and Anna, you sort of touched on this when you were introducing yourself. I guess when when something's happening, whether that's a hurricane flood, any, any of these events or ahead of that, what are sort of the first questions that are going through your head and um, the different angles that you're trying to think about to find a, a new way in? And so I don't know if you want to start, but then we can open it up to others. So um, I guess... Because that's not my main beat. I don't. Um, it, normally, what happens is that, and we never had a natural disaster beat in any of the places where we worked. So, for example, um, at the Wall Street Journal, what we would do, because we really, um, our readers really cared about the oil industry, we would set up all these um, resources ahead of time so that we could be monitoring what was going on. Um, and I mean, I, it was semi-helpful. Um, the, most of the time, though, um, we were reactive. I mean, the, the, the disaster happened, and then we kind of went over there and um, tried to cover it, and, um, and then you know did some work afterwards, which I'm not endorsing as the right approach. I mean, um, some of the understanding that comes afterwards can help you better um, plan ahead. Like, for example, um, Houston. Houston has gone through so many hurricanes. And um, in retrospect, you know, had um, we stayed more after Ike and done more stories about how um, you know, how the city, the capacity of the city to respond, um, then for Harvey, we would have been far ahead um, of the game. I, I think that um, what I have learned is that um, hurricanes um, and how the cities or areas respond to them are so related to governance and, um, and the and I'm, I've, I've, most of the stuff that I've covered is in urban areas, but um, governance gets really tricky and difficult because you have huge metro areas with lots of jurisdictions, and they're not always on the same page. And I think that that's like a really um, interesting place to look um, ahead or after. Um, you know, like just take. Um, Runoff, you know, like if um, do cities talk to each other about runoff? Because when you have a hurricane like Harvey, you're going to get runoff from this city into this city into that city, and it's um, it's going to be problematic. Decisions that are taken here are going to affect down here, and um, how do people talk about it? And um, and in the aftermath of the disaster, do they do anything to better coordinate um, on that? So um, that's just one example of, of um, an interesting place to look before and after. Yeah, 
Um, I yeah, that's definitely a very important point that Anna makes. Disasters don't recognize jurisdictional boundaries, so um, yeah, you definitely uh, uh, deal with that a lot. I think another good. Um, place to really start looking for stories um, before, during, and after disasters is to look at particular populations and the impacts to particular populations and disasters. Um, many, many people um, suffer disproportionately from disasters, so we know that disasters impact all people, but um, they impact um, some people um, more severely than others, and a lot of that is just built in. It's a, it's a social justice this issue um, and so um, one when when I was reporting in an area near here um, called Broomfield Colorado um, we uh, just my kind of entry into that was I was doing a I was doing a series of profiles for uh, World War II victim or not victims but um, World War II veterans um, and so I had been talking to these people who are obviously quite aged and we had this huge snowstorm I think it was like 12 feet of snow it was it was crazy and nobody went anywhere for like three days um, and I started kind of getting worried about these people that I had been talking to and um, it was uh, it was just very interesting to learn how um, you know because I was also doing stories about um, the you know the the city and how they were dealing with the response to the to the uh, snowstorm and um, and hearing all of what they were saying about like what they were doing for their population, but then also seeing these uh, very aged people and how they were handling things and what kind of support systems that they had and what the, how different the impacts were from what the actual um, you know the the line of city officials were were even thinking about. So um, that's definitely a, a, a way to get kind of a unique um, viewpoint, I think, on disasters. So in the, in the aftermath of Katrina, um, the Army Corps of Engineers did a, a major um, rethink of how they designed for uh, levees uh, involving both um, river and uh, uh, coastal hurricane issues and uh, flood issues. And uh, one of the things that came out of that was that the Corps of Engineers uh, put together a program where they now inspect all federally funded levies every five years and give the local sponsors one year after that inspection to uh, come up with a plan for improving the levies to bring them back up to uh, the 100-year standard that is required of levies uh, for flooding as a result of the National Flood Insurance Program uh, standards. Um, and that gives you an opportunity to look at quite a few different things involving your community if you have a levy in your community, um, including a lot of the questions involved with, those, with that decision-making. Um, <clears throat> Uh, things that I'm interested in, in looking at are why are uh, base flood elevations that are uh, part of the National Flood Insurance Program based on a snapshot in time today uh, rather um, than forward-looking estimate of potential future water heights? Uh, why is it based on a 1% chance of flooding 
the so-called 100-year storm, when there's actually a 26% chance that that event will occur in the lifetime of a 30-year mortgage? Uh, shouldn't the proper standard be a 0.2% or 500-year standard or a 0.1% or a 1,000-year standard? And uh, why should the Army Corps of Engineers continue to be immune for liability for building improperly designed or built water protection systems, which they are now? As, as you may know, a big chunk of the uh, outstanding debt in the National Flood Insurance Program, as much as $20 billion of it, is still associated with losses in New Orleans. Well, 500,000 homeowners in New Orleans filed claims against the Army Corps of Engineers that were denied because of their immunity. So those are those are some key issues to, to that you might want to look at in your in your communities. Great. Uh, so pivoting just a little bit. So the name of the panel is Disasters Beyond Parachuting. So you know one one of the big questions is how do you do that? You know, how do you come into a new place, or even if you've been living there for a long time, how do you report on these stories without, you know, feeling almost usury sometimes? You, know, you come in, you're like, I need to I need to do this story, I only have a limited amount of time, I just need to find people to get the quotes that I need, or I'm gonna talk to a, a local reporter to sort of learn more information from them to help me in my reporting. So how, how can you go about reporting on these issues to do the story justice and, you know, not just parachute in and out, basically. <laughs> I, don't um, I, I feel like um, talking to the local, local community, and it sounds really, um, you know, common sense, but um, it's crucial. And, um, and not just talk to one person, but um, talk to a lot of people. Um, what I do is I talk to a lot of um, different groups. That it may be people who are trying to help victims. It may be um, local business associations. It may be realtors. It may, you know, that people who really have, realtors are actually a really good one, um, who have a really good sense of the community and then they can tell you what the issues are. Um, because otherwise you may pick an issue and maybe that's not the most relevant one. And other times, I mean, I've been there, you know, like you are coming in from somewhere else and you're reading all these clips in order to figure out what you're gonna do. And then you end up doing something very similar to what the person who wrote the clip did. And then everyone does that and then you have um, all these stories about this one thing and then none on a lot of other ones. So um, I think um, talking to the local community to, to get a better sense of what's going on and, and include some geographic diversity in the places that, you know, don't go to the places where everyone's going, I guess. Um, and um, for this Maria project, we actually worked with a local news outlet, which was an amazing, wonderful experience, which um, might be something you want to consider. Yeah, I'm, I'll add to that, too. Um, uh, I'll second that, because um, 
if, if you ever get a chance to work with um, emergency managers, they, they always have the saying, they, they say, um, the time to hand somebody your business card is not in the middle of a disaster. And, um, and that, I think, especially goes for journalists, too. So if you think that there is a, um, a disaster that you might have to cover, you know, like here in Colorado, you're probably, you know, you might have to cover a flood or a wildfire. You know, if you're in California, you might have to co cover earthquake impacts of, so of some sort, you know. So find out who the people, and not just the official people, um, but the people who are working in that area, the people that would be impacted um, by the area, and just start building connections with those, you know, beforehand, if you can do that. And I think the second thing I would add is um, try not to come in with a pre conceived idea of what your story is. Um, there are a lot of disaster myths. There's a lot of sociological research around um, disaster myths um, that are pretty common, like um, the idea that people panic in a disaster is actually not the case. Um, social science studies have shown that people are actually really proactive in a disaster and pro-social, um, that they make good decisions and help their neighbors. Um, they don't need to be saved. Um, they're really not victims in a lot of cases. Um, uh, another big one is like the looting, um, the, the myth that people are looting. Like so uh, a lot of social research studies have showed that looting doesn't really occur in a disaster. Um, and if it does, um, it's um, usually carried out by like isolated groups of people. But if we report on looting happening, that can have like a big impact later on down the road because people will not evacuate because they're afraid somebody's going to come and loot their home. So, um, you know, just kind of thinking about even what the impacts of your reporting are, are, are important. I, I have a, a, a couple of things to say because uh, we have been a victim, victim of uh, parachuting, uh, uh, significant parachuting during Katrina. Um, my first one, and I have to predicate this with a, with a disclaimer, uh, my daughter is a producer for Anderson Cooper, but my first suggestion is do not camp out where Anderson Cooper has his camera set up. Go somewhere else, please. Um, don't go to the place where everybody else is. Go find other places to go. Um, the other thing is contact the local news organization and ask them for assistance and their views on what this disaster means to the community. Um, after Katrina, um, about six months afterwards, uh, when the levee system was in the midst of almost being, the design was almost complete for the reconstruction, um, U.S. Today came in with a story that said Lower Ninth Ward should be abandoned. No one should live there. Well, Lower Ninth Ward is completely surrounded by the levee system, and it was getting new hundred-year levees. And there's nothing more um, uh, dangerous about living there than uh, living anywhere else in New Orleans. We. Uh, complained to them about that story and said, why don't you come down? We'll give you a tour and explain to you what's going on. They sent 17 reporters and editors to the city and we gave them a tour uh, and their reporting uh, got a lot better in the aftermath of that. Um, uh, the, uh, the other um, part of this is, is just 
understanding that your view of the community as an outsider is not necessarily the way the storm affected the community. And Katrina is a perfect example of that. While it was viewed nationally as uh, a largely African-American disaster because the majority of New Orleans' population, 67% uh, before Katrina, was African-American, the reality was that the death rate was very close to 50-50, white and black. And the white communities were uh, um, upper middle class uh, were flooded uh, as bad or worse than the lower, lower class uh, African-American communities. Um, so that's a, that's a key thing to remember. Uh, don't just get stuck uh, looking at what all the TV cameras are looking at. Go, go find out what's really happening on the ground. Um, I'll stop there. Great. So um, this was said a little bit before, but yet storms, floods, wildfires, they don't pay attention to jurisdictional boundaries. They don't pay attention to the government um, or administration. Um, and a lot of the issues you know, persist over much longer than just four years. Um, but is it different covering these things now under this current administration as opposed to other administrations? Or are there just certain things that are always the same challenges no matter what. I don't know who wants to start. Well, fortunately, um, I really haven't had to cover disaster under the Trump administration yet. Um, but I, I, I can tell you that, um, uh, yeah, there, are, there, there seem to be some issues involved with uh, um, uh, where the message is coming from, obviously there's the, you know, the, the Sharpie incident, which uh, was highly frustrating to me. I had, I had literally two days before run a story um, uh, before the storm hit uh, that um, uh, was talking about what was new at the National Hurricane Center and the Hurricane Research Division in terms of trying to address issues that were were hot in covering in in getting information to the public, and the key thing that uh, everybody said was, people do not understand that the effects of hurricanes occur outside of that bubble. That is the bubble that shows the potential location of the center of the hurricane over time. Um, and that they don't understand that there's a difference between that bubble which shows where the center is and what storm surge uh, risk might be, which is a completely separate now, thank God, after Katrina, they now have separate warnings for that. Uh, but in addition to that, they said that one of the key things that people were really having a problem with in Florida was that just a tiny wobble back and forth of where that eye will be could mean the difference just 20 miles between uh, minimal winds and, and the highest winds of a storm. And there's really very little that the hurricane forecasters can do other than broaden their warnings even while 
their their um, the, their success has narrowed that window down for where that eye is supposed to be. So they're trying to tell the public, uh, they're trying to put together ways of explaining to the public better ways of, of where these things occur. And the other piece that they were talking about was that uh, a lot of people don't understand that even after the eye of the storm moves past, a lot of the intensity of a storm can occur, especially in terms of rainfall, well away from the eye of the storm, uh, east or west, as we saw with Harvey, where you know the 60 inches of rain was nowhere near where the storm itself actually hit, the eye of the storm hit. So those are, are key issues that when a, a president <laughs> like this one did, starts playing games um, with a Sharpie, uh, it, it really is difficult. Um, I'm reminded Max Mayfield told me um, that the reason that he demanded that they put a newsroom um, uh, set up inside the National Hurricane Center was the, so that he could be able to be on TV news during the news portion of the newscast so that the public would at least once get the official National Hurricane Center warning, even while their own forecasters might be saying it was going somewhere else. Well, I haven't been actively um, reporting um, disasters. Um, I've been kind of reporting around uh, issues of disasters. Um, I, you know, I mean, I, and I think this has been uh, really, uh, really well covered at this conference. It's just harder to get some of our federal sources um, to, uh, to, to talk. And uh, I know a lot of people that I'm really close to that um, I can normally get a pretty straight answer from. Um, I just really have to um, ask different questions and um, do a lot more reading between the lines, which, you know, I, I don't like to do. But I mean, it just makes it, you know, a, a degree as a degree of difficulty in that sense. So I'll, I'll add that. And I guess another element of it is um, reduced funding for some important um, data gathering and monitoring that, um, you know, we, we won't have. Um, and we're starting not to have because of cuts. Um, and then, uh, you know, and I would say, like, in terms of, of you know, I think that in terms of response, um, you know, other administrations have had poor responses to disasters as well, so that's not that different. But having someone constantly be hijacking the narrative um, is, is really complicated and like in the case of Puerto Rico that was happening the whole time and sometimes you can kind of ride that wave to um, you know use that to raise awareness about you know other you know how what he's saying is not true um, but it is um, I don't know if that's the best way I mean I, I think that we're all struggling not just with natural disasters but um, in general how do you deal with a president who is constantly lying um, and do you report you know no that's not true this is a truth or you you know how do you deal with it sure um, so yeah moving along it, so you know let's move past the sort of initial days and weeks of something happening but you know months later a year later how do you how do you go about covering something that happened you know 
a year ago. And um, Anna, I don't know if you want to start and talk a little bit about your experience reporting on Maria. Yeah, so um, so this the project that I worked on was very, very specific. It was about recording deaths. And, um, and the reason why, I mean, it was a very complicated process, and so that's why it took so long. But um, it was also, I mean, we timed it so that it would be right a year after, so that people could um, kind of um, step back and, you know, and, and kind of uh, grasped the 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 size and the scale of it. Um, I also think that um, a year later, people have a better capacity to process more complicated information about what about what happened. More complicated analysis, and um, and you also have all the data that um, accumulated, or you know, you can now use it because at the time of the disaster you can't I mean it's uh, it's not available so we did a really detailed analysis of um, the changes in in death patterns after the hurricane and we like um, cause of death we analyzed I don't know how many hundreds of causes of death and compared um, what was the trend previously and then afterwards and then that helped us figure out okay well where are the vulnerabilities where were the uh, spots where um, the government should have done something else in order to protect um, citizens. Um, so I think uh, data is a really helpful thing to look at afterwards um, and when you have time you can do a more detailed analysis. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. So I think um, actually I would say there's there's no disasters are a cycle and I mean I kind of mentioned that before but um, so so there you know you might have an event and you know and you might want to do your year anniversary story but I mean disasters take years to recover from even like smaller scale disasters here in Colorado I think it was 2014 we had a series of flooding in the Flint Range area it was unique to our area we're still building bridges and roads from that. Um, you know, we still have people, we have um, areas that, of people that were dislocated and they're still feeling the impacts. You know, obviously five years later, you lose your home and, and everything and, um, and your neighborhood isn't rebuilt. You, you feel the impacts of that. So, so there's that piece of uh, a particular disaster. There's always that later, but there's always the coming disaster too. And um, in a way, I think those stories are they're um, they're less compelling, maybe from uh, from a, a news cycle point of view. But they're so important for your communities to understand, like. Um, and you can use past disasters to make them more compelling, like what Mark did with the bridges, for instance, um, and kind of using a, a past disaster to say, well, what would happen if that would happen here? Um, but there's all sorts of mitigation work that's being done to harden your infrastructure um, or needs to be done. So that's, that's a story. Um, there's all sorts of preparedness measures that should be taken um, in advance and far, far in, in advance of a disaster. And, um, you know, those are um, just less, maybe less interesting stories. Um, or not less interesting. I hate the word sexy, but that's the word I want to use, like less sexy stories. But, um, you know, there's, 
just a, a, a lot out there. Um, it's just maybe how you kind of enter the conversation and, and start thinking about it. Yeah, I, I'm going to say yes, what she said. Um, uh, major di disasters um, are not one-year stories. They're not five-year stories. They're 20-year stories. Um, an example of that is that um, uh, the city of New Orleans has had some real serious problems with rainfall events recently, uh, and there have been real concerns raised about our drainage system, including some uh, underground tunnels that seem to be clogged, leading to pump stations that pump water out of the city toward the lake. And three weeks ago, they pulled a car out from one of those tunnels. Okay. Now, the joke was that when they pulled the car out on the, on, with this big crane, the trunk popped open and a bunch of Mardi Gras beads fell out, okay, <laughs> which everybody had actually predicted was going to happen. So that was funny in and of itself. But the other crazy thing was that when they finally tracked down the owner of the car, he had reported it missing during Hurricane Katrina. So the car had been in the tunnel since Katrina. So what questions do you have about that? Well, <laughs> one would be what was the city doing not, not checking these tunnels to make sure they weren't clogged? But equally important is where was FEMA when it's giving billions of dollars to the city to rebuild and redo their, these tunnels where it doesn't know that these tunnels are still clogged? So th that's that's. Uh, an interesting story. The other, uh, the other thing that um, is good to know is, um, and, and again, it's this one is something you should be doing the pre-work on prior to the storm, and that is, what kind of uh, programs do your cities, your locations have already set up um, to? respond to a catastrophic incident? Do they have a plan for how to handle um, um, uh, community, community development block grant money uh, to um, rebuild houses, uh, to do uh, public infrastructure projects? Do they already have this on the ground? The city of New Orleans, the, the uh, Army Corps of Engineers, has an unwatering uh, plan how to drain the water out of the city. Um, they had that before Katrina. They expected it would take six months from a catastrophic storm like the, like the effects that happened during Katrina. And because they had the project already planned out, it only took them two months to get all the water out. Okay, uh, those kinds of things are important, but they're also important for this reason, which is that you should also be checking to see whether or not the systems that they have in place are going to be um, uh, uh, equally uh, designed to help low-income and upper-income people. In New Orleans, after Katrina, there was a great push to get people to start building as quickly as possible of homes because they wanted the city to come back, right? Well, the result of that was that a lot of that money was focused on areas where people had the money to come back, who had money in the bank and were able to come back, which meant mainly 
middle class and upper middle class communities. The places that ended up being served the last was the lower ninth ward, which was flooded again a month later during the next hurricane. People weren't even able to start building there for a year. And by that time, the money that they had gotten for a variety of different reasons was gone that they were living on. And there was very little help from for them other than nonprofit organizations. Great. All right. So we'll open it up to audience questions now. Um, but just before I do, I want to note that our panelists were kind enough to help put together some resources for everyone. So we have a tip sheet, and I think it'll be up online on the SCJ website somewhere. But also, feel free to give me your email or anything, and I can just send it to you if that <laughs> is easier. Um, so yeah. So if you ask a question, just please identify yourself, and then I will repeat the question so that I can everyone hear. All right. So the question is, there's a lot of focus on infrastructure and do you think, the, and, and the idea that you can't build yourself out of this, and um, sorry, can you repeat the second part? It was about communities, sure, and yeah, and resiliency efforts to for the next disaster. Um, uh, New Orleans post Katrina is uh, sort of an interesting uh, case study on that. Um, uh, the uh, in the lower ninth ward, um, the uh, Make It Right program, that's the Brad Pitt uh, nonprofit. Uh, put together a variety of different housing uh, efforts. Actually, they brought in architects from all over the, the world to design houses that uh, would be resilient um, uh, with varying results. One of the problems they ran into is that a lot of the houses had uh, some problems with uh, drywall that they weren't expecting. Uh, that that nobody had caught uh, but some of the some of the things that they did do were a lot of them were lead certified homes uh, uh, they were elevated to the proper actually it, it turned out to be uh, about two feet higher than the the new flood um, uh, base flood elevations after the levees were rebuilt. Um, so things like that can help. Um, the the state has a program where they're going into different communities uh, to to talk to communities about what their future is and how to deal with the potential that there will have to be retreat or the potential that uh, they can build uh, coastal restoration projects to provide them with additional time to live in their communities. Um, uh, the, the state also has an effort underway uh, to build levees in some areas or to improve levees uh, in the city of New Orleans. Um, the city is got an east bank west bank that's actually north and south um, uh, different levy group organizations and the east bank organization on uh next thursday is going to propose to the army corps of engineers that it begin a study of um if it's uh feasible to build the city's levees raise the city's levees system to a 500 year level of protection from the present 100 year level of protection um, so those are some key examples yeah, I think I, I want to yeah. weigh in on that too. Um, I um, I think it's really an, an important thing to recognize. I, I don't know the context where they're saying you can't build your way out, but you know probably we should start thinking about right not building 
our way out, not building in vulnerable areas, the areas that are going to be really um, uh, vulnerable to extreme events and start thinking. But it, it, it's difficult, right, because those are those are the areas where a lot of communities make their money. Um, and so a lot of communities are, I will say to you, on the federal level, um, uh, the Federal Emergency Management Agency um, has just kind of done a little bit of a shift to where they're going to start spending some of the money that they normally spend building back from disasters and instead use it for um, helping, um, it's called the uh, Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Program, it's BRIC. So they're going to be using these BRIC projects to um, uh, help communities take some of those vulnerable areas and that vulnerable infrastructure and um, make it more resilient, um, use that, use those areas for, for something else maybe and, and instead, um, like there's a lot of uh, great uses for like floodplains, for instance, that aren't uh, strip malls and parking lots. Um, so there's that. Yeah, Nancy, I'll qualify too. The BRIC program is actually taking over the, the, that grant program, so that's all kind of getting rolled up into that. No, the Trump administration rescinded that uh, executive order almost immediately. <laughs> that was one of his key things. Um, let me. Uh, we're talking about the executive order that required federal uh, federal projects to be uh, to consider 500 year protection um, uh, uh, an example of what you're talking about was the 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 uh, First Nation organization uh, Ilde, uh, in Ile de Jean Charles, which um, the state got a federal grant to relocate the entire community, uh, which had already been sort of whittled down because uh, it, it was left out of uh, the major 100 year levy system at, uh, near Homa, Louisiana. Um, the problem was that uh, while um, the state kept saying that it was negotiating with the the leaders of that community and that it was all, you know, a, a done deal and they bought the land and everything was going to be great to move them upland. Um, the community said, no, we're not really interested in that. We like where we want to be because it's where we need to be to fish. And uh, it'll cost so much for us to drive back and forth or it's you know that we just don't think that's a place where our culture will survive so there has to be that process as well involved in understanding what's really going on with the community all right so i'll just repeat that question really quickly so when you're dealing with storms that might potentially be stronger or more unprecedented than before how do you report in advance accurately about the the risk so uh, the, the key word there is accurately, and I'm not sure that you can because you don't know what's really going to happen. However, uh, before Katrina in 2002, we put together a series uh, that took me five years to convince the paper to do that uh, uh, basically looked at the increased risk uh, in New Orleans from the hurricane system because the levees were too low. The Corps of Engineers had said that and had tried to begin a new project to redesign under the old rules, which would take them another 40 years to rebuild the new levy system, uh, which was stopped by the by the Bush administration at the time because uh, they wanted money to go elsewhere, mo mostly into terrorism. But that series pointed out all the key things that that were 
problems. Um, the evacuation system, uh, the fact that, uh, uh, that uh, an evacuation would be needed for everyone because um, the uh, American Red Cross several years before had uh, decided that it was no longer going to put its um, volunteers in danger in shelters that were in areas that could flood. Um, uh, the fact that uh, um, uh, just basically an idea of what would happen if the levees were overtopped, what would it look like, those kind of, you know, when the big one happens, this is what happens, uh, and this is what you can expect. We explain what happened um, in the 1900 flood in Galveston, uh, and what happened in the aftermath, which was that they rebuilt the island and rose, r raised it by seven feet to add uh, um, uh, more protection protection, something that some people have said should be done for New Orleans, that the city should be filled with, uh, with uh, sand and dirt uh, and everything elevated, which of course is financially impossible to do. But yeah, th those are the kinds of things that, that should be done. What of course we missed in that series was that we, like everybody else, thought that the Army Corps of Engineers were the best engineers in the world, and um, we missed the fact that the, that a significant chunk of the flooding that would occur was a result of improperly designed levee systems. Where you can now get capture at least a part of that is uh, the um, uh, National Levee Database. Uh, that the Army Corps of Engineers runs, where they do now rate the systems. And you should know that the brand new $14 billion levy system around New Orleans is rated high risk, which is the second worst rating because of the amount of infrastructure inside the levy system. It is about $200 billion worth of value, and it's built to a 100-year level of protection. Uh, what I call the devil's bargain. If you build it to 100 years, we'll continue your flood insurance. Um, and that's happening nationwide. And the, the, you can look online for your community and see what your risk level is if you're in a levy. Now, unfortunately, you're in Miami. That database does nothing for you because you have no levies. So that's a problem. New York City's the same way. Um, and where you can go for that is uh, look at Swiss Re or some of the other reinsurance companies. They're doing similar sorts of things with, uh, with communities along the coast, ranking them in terms of uh, risk with good maps showing what storm surge can do at different levels for different storms. Um, and um, uh, that actually will be, you know, the, they're the people who actually would be determining where people live in the future, whether or not you can get insurance. Mark, what did you say that was, risk-free? Uh, uh, oh, um, uh, Swiss Re. Swiss, yeah, Swiss Reinsurance. Yeah. So, um, so on, on what you do ahead of time, um, I think that um, what I've done sometimes is just look at the existing situation um, to show, you know, how, and in Florida, it, you know, when you look at the existing infrastructure, it can even deal with much lesser storms, like even regular 
you know, rainstorms. And so I did the story. I had, I guess, I guess it was Irma, which didn't turn out to be so bad for Florida. But um, I did this whole story about the um, sewer system in Florida and how there's a lot of septic tanks and how, like, if you go under the ground, it does not look pretty. You know, like you, you can, <laughs> you can just see how. Um, um, if you have a really strong storm, then, you know, all the septic tanks are going to be, like, um, you know, overflowing, and then you have, like, a really rickety um, drainage, uh, sewer drainage system, and um, and so I just kind of looked at that really specific thing um, to show this is, um, this system is really in bad shape, even before the storm even hits. Um, and I actually talked to some people. Another good source are um, some of the companies that help cities, uh, engineering companies that help cities recover after the storm. So for example, after Sandy, there, and the, there's this Dutch company, I'll, um, I'll, I'll remember the name and put it in the resources, but um, they, they come in afterwards and help them clean up the mess. Um, and, um, and so I talked to them about what happened to Sa uh, during Sandy when you had um, sewer treatment plant, um, you know, overflow, and, and then kind of used it as an example. This is the kind of situation we could be facing um, in Florida. And on top of that, talk about how none of the people are talking to each other about that, you know? Um, and then just uh, on the resiliency question, I just wanted to quickly throw out something, an idea. I mean, we're talking about government funding, federal funding. Um, a lot of communities are trying to do this themselves um, through market-based approaches, where you um, would create a market for um, water storage in terms of, you know, if you plant a bunch of native grasses, they're going to be holding the water, um, and then you sell that as credits. So that's a really interesting um, area to look into. All right. So, yeah, how do you handle yourselves as reporters during the event and the, the way that you interact with the people that you're speaking with, even if you've spoken to them with pre-reporting? Um, I... Have, I, I've never actually had a problem with that, and I think that, um, especially during disaster situations, it's, um, you know, I mean, as long as, obviously, if you're respectful um, and considerate about what they're going through at the time, um, I, I think it really is actually people want to tell you their story. It's part of how they're processing the event. Um, so I haven't had a problem with that per se. But I also wanted to say that um, at the Natural Hazard Center, we have a, a pro uh, um, a project called Converge. And as part of the project, we're creating um, uh, training modules. They're online, self-directed training modules. Um, and this is a resource that um, that is on the list of resources that, uh, that Kyla will give you. But um, we... Uh, the training modules are set for, um, were created for uh, social scientists who do s similar work to journalists, um, sometimes quick response research, where they go into a community that's just had a disaster. And um, those will have a lot of resources there um, training you um, that, that would be good for journalists to take too. They're really accessible um, and they can show you like how to go into a community and um, think about social 
racial vulnerability in that community, how to think about um, uh, being culturally sensitive in that community, um, uh, how to do challenging um, resource because you know another the opposite side of that is as a, as a reporter you're going in to a traumatic situation it can be traumatic for you too um, and you know if you're you, you might be good at compartmentalizing but you know I mean at some point um, you if you're if you're reporting something um, bad enough you're, you're you're going to feel your own process so that's a that that would be a great resource for you know kind of uh, backgrounding yourself into just things to think about in, in that sense so um, I was homeless for six months after Katrina I uh, lived in nine different locations uh, before we bought a, a another house um, uh, that obviously was an issue in terms of my reporting because my reporting was on the Army Corps of Engineers and I was eight blocks from one of the flood walls that failed that I was reporting on why it failed. Um, uh, we talked about how uh, we built a box uh, um, uh, at my desk in the newsroom that I put all that stuff in and, and hid it away um, and didn't really worry about it. 40% um, uh, of our, our um, newsroom lost their homes during Katrina. Um, uh, that uh, the thing that helped us in terms of, of, of dealing with that uh, in terms of coverage was that we also knew that 40 percent of the um, of the uh, employees at the um, Army Corps of Engineers in New Orleans also lost their homes um, and so indeed when I talked to you know, we we played the game. How much water did you have? You know, and he said, "Well, I was in St. Bernard Parish, so you know, I had eight feet of water, and uh, but I had oil in my house as well from the from the uh, uh, the 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 tank that failed at Murphy Oil." And I said, "Oh, well, that's you know, I guess that's better than me." You know, we had two feet of water on the second floor, and. Uh, um, it, it helped a little bit. Um, in the immediate aftermath of the storm, the first couple of weeks, we needed assistance. We uh, reached out to the uh, DART uh, Center for Trauma and Journalism to bring in experts to our newsroom and help us deal with, uh, um, with those sorts of things. But it, it is a significant problem. We had one photographer who several months later uh, attempted suicide by cop. Uh, fortunately, the cops knew him and told him to just cut it out and go home. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, but there were, you know, there were real, real issues uh, involved with that. Um, in in terms of, of dealing with that as we move forward, I mean, I mean, it was crazy. Um, uh, I literally was. Um, uh, uh, living with what I had on my back and my computer uh, for a couple of weeks before we were able to uh, find a location at least to be in. Um, uh, we were in dorm rooms at LSU for a while and then individuals, houses in different locations, sleeping on couches or elsewhere. So um, it's something that you have to deal with. Um, uh, we just did. I mean, that's basically it. Some of the employees uh, left. They just couldn't deal with it and, and disappeared. Um, and there's, you know, don't 
think any worse for them for that. That's something that they had to deal with either because of their families or because of themselves. So. I'll just say really quickly that it's been really, because most of the reporting I do is, is parachuting in, um, it's been really helpful to find um, someone in the community who's gonna act as like my rabbi or my, you know, someone who's gonna be uh, introducing me to people, taking me to the places um, where I'm going. And um, I find that when I've had someone like that with me, um, it's much easier to engage in, in difficult conversations, even, even um, you know, um, finding people to talk to. Um, the other thing that I will say is um, has, um, I think, because we were working in Puerto Rico with a local outlet that was at the receiving end of all the parachuting, we, I learned a lot from them in terms of how to be, you know, um, in in a in the community and with other journalists. Like, if you're going to be quoting a local, you're going to use an information from a local report uh, attributed to them. That's like a really good idea, um, and you know, like you, you should definitely do that. Um, the other thing is, um, for this project, we really tried to have it, uh, tried to make it have. Of a Puerto Rican voice, so we not only translated everything in Spanish, but the design incorporated a lot of. I mean, we we really wanted it to be their project. I mean, and this was really their project because it had all the information. We people, you know, filled out the survey and then answered questions and stuff like that. So um, there's also a, a part that comes after you go out and write your story, um, also how you present it, I guess. I'll, I'll repeat the PSA really quickly, so just so it's recorded, um, that the science happens months and years later. So if you're looking for stories, that's always a good resource. And so then the question is, as reporters, what's our responsibility to educate the public about, about the risk? <laughs> yeah. or, or you have yeah. yeah, oh, no, no, we, we do. Uh, I, that's, that's why I'm still working. I mean, that, that literally is why I'm still working at the paper. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I, I'm still writing stories in advance of hurricanes with the line, you know, if the, the, I don't say it quite this way, but if you're dumb enough to stay in your house and not take advantage of what is now a much more, much better evacuation system with transit buses, real buses, and uh, ways of getting your, your animals out as well, um, that uh, you should uh, make sure you have a hatchet in the attic so you can cut your way out. That's, that's the simplistic way. Or um, uh, I, I usually put in a line uh, repeating what our now late uh, governor told people after Katrina for Hurricane Rita, which is that if you plan on sticking around, uh, uh, write your social security number on your arm in indelible ink so they can identify your body as a way of pushing people to get the heck out. Um, uh, local communities should be talking about what their evacuation plans and recognize that their plans uh, should address what their what their location is so in florida if you're on the coast it should be move inland as close as possible to a place that has a shelter that is high enough to get out of the storm surge while in louisiana it would be 
make sure that you have a plan to evacuate well in advance of the storm hundreds of miles away. And, and those are things, you know, we do that at the beginning of the hurricane season. We say put together a kit that you have everything ready to go. Make sure you have a plan and that everyone in your family knows it, knows where to be, when to be picked up at the time when that thing is coming in. And, and to do it and to, to actually uh, make sure that it's done. Um, we uh, address those issues in ways that we hope that the business community will be accepting of doing that. Uh, we make sure that uh, the evacuation plan is still update, uh, up to date so that we don't have a, the failure that we did prior to Katrina where uh, the, the the evacuation plan then we actually had one it was a combination of city transit buses and the school buses but the school system went bankrupt the year before and so no one signed a, a uh, contract with the school bus drivers so there was no way of guaranteeing that the buses would be driven out so the city punted and said we're going to keep the school the city buses in the city and drive people to the Superdome that we will open as a refuge of last resort, we're using that term, so that you know you should find your own way out because we can't guarantee your safety in that building. And indeed, part of the roof blew off during the storm, uh, although nobody was injured from that. Um, those kinds of things, reminding people about what, what, what's important to them say something real quick too um i would say definitely you have a responsibility um and because if if you don't who who else can say things as directly as journalists to a community um you know if you want to say that people who have the authority to keep these um issues in front are are um our agency people and uh state and local and government officials they're they're really hindered in giving people clear information and and especially now more than ever. So yes, please take up that, that mantle. I will just quickly say um, we our responsibility, I see our responsibility as not only being, you know, um, informing people about the risk, but also helping change the standards in the aftermath. I mean, that the, that the standards are what are going to protect the people um, the most, because as you say, you know, people are not going to, you know, um, no, this is an unsafe place automatically. But if there are standards built into, um, you know, where can you build? Where can you buy a house? And and I think a really useful way of um, kind of using the the historic memory we do have is when you link different disasters because they're all so similar. And when you cover different ones, you realize there are no standards. And um, and then it's kind of like, why are we operating this crazy way? Um, so anyway, uh, push for, for change. <laughs> All right, great. Well, unfortunately, we have run out of time. And I think it's time for lunch. But thank you so much for coming. And thank you to all the panelists. And I will make sure that the tip sheet's online. <laughs>